All right, hopefully you have a handout like this. If you just briefly take a look at it, please. Take a look at this handout. We're going to spend most of our time on this side where it says lessons one through five, but I just want you to briefly notice on the back there is a family worship guide there. I think it's very important for families to be gathered around the Word of God, not just on weekends when they attend church, but throughout the week, and especially if you're a father or a husband, then that responsibility to lead your family well spiritually rests on your shoulders. And so gather your families in prayer, gather your families around God's Word, and hopefully this can serve as a little supplement for that. There's some questions to discuss and verses to read for at least three days during the week. I want to second thank the staff here at Living Hope Church. I was here this past week on Wednesday when they planned their worship service this weekend, and I shared about a good friend of mine named Rachel Dye, who learned recently that she has stage four cancer. And so when Alan first invited me to preach here, he said, I'd really like it if you preached on trials. And interestingly, I was a guest preacher at another church last week, and I was looking forward to to preaching the same message back to back. So Alan sort of messed that up a little bit for me. And so he says, why don't you preach on trials? And so then about two weeks after that, we learned that this young mother in our church, Rachel, had stage four cancer. And while our church was very burdened for her, I knew that I couldn't come back that Sunday and preach on anything other than trials to try to help us navigate those waters that we found ourselves in. And when I was sharing this with the the staff on Wednesday that I was going to come and share much of that same message, with, with all of you, I was so thankful. I, w- I was so impressed with their um, burden, their, their sympathy, and the concern that they showed for Rachel. They allowed um, videos, uh, the, vi- the promotional video on Wednesday, to have this picture of Rachel and the website. And so one reason that I mention all this is I hope uh, we would cover your prayers for Rachel. I would ask you to be praying for her. It was uh, just terribly shocking for her and for our church family to learn that she had stage four cancer. That's one reason I mentioned this is I want to invite you to pray for her and her husband Jameson and their children. The other reason that I mention that is it's a good lead-in to this morning's sermon because it allows me to make a very simple point to you that life can change very quickly. Amen? Rachel felt like her life was going along very well. She shared a story with me when my wife and I arrived at the hospital that Wednesday morning that she had received the diagnosis and said that it was only a week or two earlier that she remembers very vividly sitting out back watching her children. She had her feet dangling in the little kiddie pool, and here's what she thought to herself. How can life be this good? How can life be this good? Things couldn't be any better. And then only a week or two after that to receive that diagnosis. And so things can change quickly. We have to be prepared for trials. We have to be prepared for trials. Listen to this verse, James 1-2. It says, My brethren, count it all joy, when you fall into various trials. And I want you to notice, James did not use the word if, did he? What word did he use? When. He used the word when. And this brings us to lesson one on that handout. Lesson one, expect trials. Lesson one, expect trials. We're going to face trials on this side of heaven. We need to expect them. 1 Peter 4.12 It says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. And that Greek word there for strange, it means astonished, or it means shocked, or it means surprised. And so what this means is we're not to be astonished, or we're not to be shocked, or we're not not to be surprised by trials. Instead, we should what? We We should, I only heard like four or five people say that. Instead, we should what? We should 
We have to expect them. We have to expect them. But let me ask you this. How often, when we experience trials, do we say something like this? How can this happen to me? How could this be happening to me? We might even say, why would God allow, or perhaps, why would God cause this to happen to me? In other words, we're acting surprised, astonished, and shocked. We should go through this life understanding that we're either experiencing a trial or we're heading toward a trial, that this is simply part of life on this side of heaven. And this is why it is so unfortunate to ever tell people that if you become a Christian, if you start following Jesus, then he's going to do what with your life? Make it perfect. That he's going to make it perfect. It's unfortunate to tell people that because there's only three possible results or consequences of that. First, they're going to be upset with you later when they remember that you told them Jesus would make their life perfect and then he didn't. That's one possibility. The other possibility is they'll be upset. If they're not upset with you, they'll be upset with who? They'll be upset with God. They'll be upset with Jesus that he wasn't making their life perfect like they expected. Or third, they'll just think that all this Christianity stuff isn't true. They'll just think that Jesus doesn't exist. They'll think that it's all just one big lie. So we need to be honest with people when it comes to trials. This is what Jesus actually said. John 16, and maybe you can finish this for me. In the world, you will have tribulation. In the world, you will have tribulation. That's what Jesus actually said. Back to James 1, 2, Jesus, or James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, fall into various trials. Some translations say meet or encounter. And I got to be honest with you that I don't particularly like that language because it gives the impression that you're just sort of walking along and you trip and fall and find yourself in a trial. This brings us to lesson two on our handouts. Lesson two, trials are unpredictable, but not accidents. Trials are unpredictable, but not accidents. Even though we should expect trials, we don't know when they're going to take place. And that causes them to be unpredictable. The words fall into or meet or encounter, depending on how your Bible reads, gives the impression that trials are accidental. Like you just happen to go one direction and run into a trial, and if you would have went this other direction, then you wouldn't have ended up encountering a trial. And if you see trials as accidents, then whenever you experience one, what are some of the things that you're going to say? You're going to say, well, why am I so unlucky? Why do bad things keep happening to me? And probably the worst thing that can happen when people view trials as accidents is they can think that there's something that they did to cause it. They can think that there's something they did to bring this into their lives. And I want to be honest with you, so hear me very clearly when I say this. If you did something that brought suffering into your life, like you sinned or you did something immoral, that suffering is not a trial, that is discipline. Do you see the difference there? It's a very important distinction. If you sin and you suffer as a result of that sin, that is not a trial, that is discipline, and it's a terrible thing when people confuse those two. If you sin and you're suffering, God is disciplining you because he loves you and he wants to see you do what? Repent. He's chastening you as one of his children, trying to bring about repentance in your life. But if people don't think that, and they think that there's something that they did to bring this trial, not discipline, but trial into their lives, then what are they going to do? We're going to beat ourselves up. We're going to be filled with shame. We're going to be filled with regret. We're going to think there's something we could have done to prevent it. 
Some people beat themselves up for, for the rest of their lives, never being able to forgive themselves for some difficult trial they experience, thinking that it's their fault. So we want to make sure that we don't see trials as accidents. There's nothing accidental about them. One of the main reasons people want to see trials as accidents is it's troubling to them to think of God allowing, or worse, God causing this suffering in their life. And so what we want to do is we want to separate God from whatever trial or whatever suffering we're experiencing. And I want to just invite you for a moment to sort of play out that logic. Let's just sort of play out that logic, and let's just imagine, let's separate God from our trials, or let's separate God from, from our suffering. If you think what that means, you're saying that God is not sovereign. You're saying that God is not in control of what you're going through. He's not directing your life. God is just sort of sitting back, and he's looking down, and he's saying something like this. Why is this happening to him? Why is this happening to her? I wish something else would have happened instead. I feel so bad for him, or I feel so bad for her. I wish there was something I could do about it. I wish I could be in control. I wish I could be omnipotent. I wish I could be sovereign because then I could have prevented this or then, then I would be able to help. But because I'm not, I can't do anything. In my mind, that would be way more troubling. <laughs> that would be way more troubling to think that God is not in control, to think that God is not sovereign. Because if you follow me for a moment, if there was only one area of your life, second only to your salvation, that you want God to be sovereign over or you want God to be in control of, wouldn't it be your trials? Wouldn't it be your suffering? Second only to your salvation, if there is one area of your life that you wanted to know God was in control over, that you wanted to know, be confident that he's sovereign over, wouldn't it be your suffering? Wouldn't it be the trials that you experience? Imagine people experience terrible trials Or imagine we're experiencing terrible trials. What is the only thing we can tell ourselves that gives us some amount of peace or encouragement? God is in control. God is sovereign. This is not an accident. It's not that I am unlucky. It's not that I am unfortunate. There are no accidents. I am God's child. I can trust him. He loves me. He knows what's best for me. He's always working in my best interests. The trials we experience, they have the potential to do something that Jesus described very fittingly in the parable of the sowers. Matthew 7, 25 and 27, Jesus said, the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. Now, when you read those verses, what sort of imagery is created in your minds there, these storms or trials that are, building, that are beating on this house. And to be clear, this house is a picture of a life, or it is a picture of a marriage, or it is a picture of a family. And so what imagery is created when you imagine these trials just beating on that person, beating on that life, beating on that marriage, beating on that home? You imagine a person or a marriage or a home that feels like it's going to collapse, that feels like it cannot bear up, it cannot stand up or withstand the trials that it's going through. And so you can hear me say that, and you can say, okay, well, that's great that you explained that to us, but what's the solution? What's the solution, Pastor Scott? Well, I'm really glad you guys just asked me that. (laughs) Jesus provided the solution for us. 
Jesus told us what the solution is to make sure that our lives or our marriages or our families can withstand those trials that we experience or that storm that's beating on us on this side of heaven. And this brings us to lesson three on our handouts. Lesson three, a strong foundation is needed. A strong foundation is needed. My suspicion is all of us, at some point in our lives, have probably said something very close to, I don't think I can handle this anymore. I don't know that I can go one more day experiencing this same suffering. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get out of bed tomorrow, if that's going to mean going through the same thing tomorrow that I'm going through today. And so what is the solution to that when we feel like that house that is going to collapse beneath the storms or trials that are beating on us? And Jesus provided the answer in Matthew 7, 24 and 25. He said, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended, the floods came, the trials, the winds blew and they beat on that house, and what? It did not fall. It did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Now, since we need to expect trials on this side of heaven, what do we need to make sure of? We need to make sure that we have strong foundations. We need to make sure that we have strong foundations. Otherwise, those trials are going to make us collapse. These are the trials that ruin lives. These are the trials that ruin marriages or ruin families when people don't have these strong foundations. And so you could read the parable of the two builders and you could think Jesus sounds particularly harsh or he sounds particularly cruel when he talks this way. He could not have been more loving. He could not have been more compassionate when he shared this because he doesn't want you to collapse. He wants you to know what's needed to be able to withstand those trials that he knows are going to beat on us on this side of heaven. And he said the solution is obedience to his teachings. It is obeying Christ's words. This is not a promise from me to you. You need to read these words and understand that this is a promise from Christ himself to you. That if you're to obey his teachings, then you, your marriage, your family, your children are going to be able to withstand, bear up underneath whatever storms you experience in this life. I want to give you an illustration of this from the Old Testament. If you happen to have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to 2 Chronicles 14. 2 Chronicles 14. And while you turn there, I want to share something with you about the Old Testament. Unfortunately, sometimes people read the Old Testament, and let's be honest, what do you say? You say, what application does this have for me? What can I possibly learn from this? How can I read about this person's life, or how can I read about this king, or how can I read about this account and find anything from it for my life, and it particularly grieves me as a pastor to hear people say that. And the reason that it grieves me is because God's word, the New Testament in particular, tells us that the point of the Old Testament is to give us instruction and examples to learn from. Just so you don't think that's my opinion. Romans 15:4, whatever is written in the Old Testament is written for our learning. 
One more verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. These things in the Old Testament happened to them, happened to the Israelites as examples, and they were written for our admonition. So you should look at the Old Testament and do the opposite of what many people do. Instead of saying, I can't learn from this, you should say, I need to learn from this. Instead of saying, I don't see application, you need to say, I know there's application. Lord, help me see it. Help me find it. So with that in mind, 2 Chronicles 14, verse 2, about a good king of the southern kingdom of Judah. His name was Asa. It says, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. For he, and the notice this, it says, he removed the altars of the foreign gods and the high places. And the notice this, he broke down the sacred, sacred pillars. Notice this, he cut down the wooden images. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, God of their fathers, and to observe the law and the commandment. He also, and the notice this, he removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was quiet under him. Now, considering what I just shared with you about the Old Testament from Romans 15 and from 1 Corinthians 10, what should you be asking yourselves right now? You should be asking, since God took a precious space in his word with these verses, what are we supposed to what? Eh, that's like three people. Since God took a precious space in his word with these verses, what are we supposed to learn from them? What are the examples? What are the lessons for us from these verses? Simply put, the reason I emphasized broke down, removed, cut down, smashed, is it pictures Asa's ruthlessness with sin. These verses could very easily say, Asa removed the sin from the land. That's what it could say. Why did God go to such great lengths repeating these different verbs to create this imagery in our mind? Because God wants you to see that Asa was ruthless with sin, and the picture for us is we need to be ruthless with sin too. He was ruthless with the sin in his nation. We need to be ruthless with the sin in our lives, in our hearts. It's a great picture of the severity that God wants us to demonstrate with sin and with temptation. And it's the same ruthlessness or it's the same severity that Jesus himself taught or preached in the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus say you're supposed to do with your eye if it causes you to sin? What are you supposed to do with your hand if it causes you to sin? Now, Jesus doesn't mean that physically. Matthew 5, 29, your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. More profitable that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. Your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off cast it from you. This isn't, this isn't literal. Jesus often spoke figuratively or using hyperbole, but he was still making a point. There was still a lesson, even if it wasn't literal, and he's describing the ruthlessness or the severity with which we need to deal with sin in our lives. And I'll just be candid with you at this moment. Many of us, or most of us, are way too gentle with sin. We take sin way too lightly. We entertain it. We don't do the things that Asa did with it. We don't crush it. We don't break it. We don't smash it. We don't remove it completely from our lives. And that's what Asa pictures for us, the example that God wants us to follow. Verse 6, 2 Chronicles 14, 6. It says, Asa built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest. He had no war in those years because the Lord had given him rest. Therefore, he said to Judah, let us build these cities 
and to make walls around them, and towers, and gates, and bars, while the land is yet before us. Because we have sought the Lord our God, we have sought him, and he has given us rest on every side, so they built and prospered. I want you to notice the repetition of some words. If none of you ever heard this before, it's nice to speak to a new group of people because I've said this so many times to my church, I get to tell you. God uses repetition when he wants to make sure that we don't miss something because we're dense, right? (laughs) So if you're ever, maybe just me, just me, okay. If you're ever speaking to a liberal person who says, well, I found this mistake in, in scripture, Because God said the same thing here that he said over there. You need to tell that liberal person that God doesn't use highlighting, that he doesn't use underlining, that he doesn't use asterisks to make sure that we don't miss something. He uses repetition. And so when you notice something two, three, four, five times, that's God's way of communicating to us who are a little denser. This is a lesson that I want to make sure you learn. And something you happen to notice in these verses is the repetition of regarding rest and peace that Asa experienced. Uh, Verse 5, the kingdom was quiet under him. Verse 6, the land had rest. No wars in those years. The Lord had given him rest. Verse 7, Asa had been given rest on every side. Three times in three verses, God communicates to us the rest and peace Asa experienced. Pretty clear he doesn't want us to miss that. Now here's the question we should be asking. When God gave Asa this peace and rest, what did he do with it? Let me say that one more time. God afforded Asa all of this peace and rest. What did Asa do with it? Did you happen to notice when we were reading the verses? He built. He strengthened. He fortified. And it is a tremendous example for us. A tremendous example. Look at verse 6. He built fortified cities in Judah for the land had rest. Verse 7. He said to Judah, let us build these cities. Make walls around them and towers, gates, and bars. While the land is before us, because we sought the Lord our God, we sought him. He's given us rest on every side, so they built and prospered. And this brings us to lesson four. Build during times of peace. Build during times of peace in your life. Since we know the trials are going to come. God's word makes it overwhelmingly clear that we're going to face them on this side of heaven. The question should not be, why is this happening to me? The question should be, how would God have me respond to this? How can I respond to this trial or this suffering in a way that gives him the most glory? How can I experience this trial? How can I go through this suffering in the way that the most people will see Christ through me? How can I give the most honor to the gospel of Jesus Christ as I experience this trial? That's the question we need to ask when we suffer, not why is this happening to me? The only way that we're going to give honor or be able to give honor to Christ when we suffer is if we have a strong foundation. We have to have a strong foundation. And I'll tell you this, the only way you're going to have a strong foundation is if you build it during times of peace. That's the only way you're going to have a strong foundation is if you build it and strengthen during times of peace. Now, Asa strengthened his nation physically, remembering that the Old Testament provides pictures and types for us. Do, do any of you, by a show of hands, have a nation that you rule over? And so we look and we know that this is not about us strengthening our nations, right? Because we don't have nations to strengthen. So it begs the question, what do we need to strengthen? Our lives. 
as Asa strengthened his nation physically, we are strengthening our lives spiritually. As Asa strengthened his nation or his kingdom physically, we are strengthening our marriages, our homes. And I would particularly draw on the fathers and husbands here and the responsibility that rests on your shoulders to be spiritual leaders in your home and ensure that your families are being strengthened during those seasons or times of peace and rest. And so what does this look like? You need to be praying regularly. You need to be reading the word regularly. You need to be in corporate worship regularly. And don't give me that nonsense about going outside and running and looking at the clouds and looking at the sky and that that's how you worship. I've heard too many people say that ridiculousness to me. The worship the Lord wants is corporate on the Lord's day like you're doing right now. You need to be involved in the body of Christ. That's where that strength and that help is going to come from, your brothers and sisters, when you start to suffer. The reason that Woodland Christian Church can rally around Rachel and Jameson at this time is because they have been involved in the body of Christ. You need to have a strong foundation which comes from involvement and service in the body of Christ, fellowship. But unfortunately, let's just be honest, what do we often do or what are we tempted to do during times of peace and rest? What are we tempted to do during times of peace and rest? Relax. Rest. I heard someone say vacation. That's right. That's right. We do the opposite of build. We do the opposite of strengthen. We relax. And I want to illustrate the danger of this with a sports analogy. My wife and I attended a very small high school. There were a little over 40 people in my graduating class. I played football for a number of years, and so I was the team's uh, running back, punt returner, and kickoff returner. Now, I have no doubt at a larger school I probably would not have even played, but at the small school I, was, I attended, I was able to get the ball frequently. You should not look into that and think that I was any good. You should look into that and recognize that I got tackled a lot. That's what it really means. It really means that, that I got tackled a lot. And because I got tackled so much in those three roles on the team, I learned that there are essentially two ways to be tackled. Two ways to be tackled. One of the ways is you're running down the field, and you can tell it's coming. You can see the defenders closing in. And so you prepare for it. You know, you hold the ball more tightly, lift up your shoulder blade, your shoulder pad to support your neck. You brace yourself for that tackle. It's delivered. It's uncomfortable. It might even be somewhat painful, but you pick yourself up off the ground, catch your breath, and then you head toward the huddle. There's another type of tackle that takes place. You're running down the field, and you don't know it's coming. And you're blindsided. And it can be devastating. It can take you some amount of time to pick yourself up off the ground. And the reason that it's so difficult is you are unprepared for it. You're unprepared for that hit. And the reason that I mention this is very sadly, many people, many Christians, are like football players who are running down the field. And they are completely unprepared for that trial that's about to do what with them? Blindside them. They're completely unprepared for that trial that is about to blindside them. Now, I do not want to communicate to you that it is too late when you're experiencing a trial to draw close to the Lord. Don't misunderstand me. I have met many people who have told me that trials are what God used to draw them to the Lord. I'm not minimizing that. I even heard one amen there from that. (laughs) Yes. 
It is a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing for God to use trials to bring us to himself. But would I also be able to get an amen if I say that it's not ideal? It's a little bit like planning for retirement when you're retired. (laughs) It's a little bit like studying for a test the day of a test. You're going to get serious about the Lord when you're in a trial Do you think it might have been better to prepare that strong foundation prior to that trial? And if I can just put in a good word for the upcoming marriage conference, I think it's a little late to start preparing for marriage when you're married. So if you expect to get married someday, and you're a little old enough, I don't want to expect any seven-year-olds to show up for the conference, come on out. Start preparing for marriage prior to walking down the aisle. So if you've been going through this life, you need to be building, you need to be strengthening that foundation. My encouragement would be to follow Asa's example, build during times of peace. Now, because Asa strengthened his nation during times of peace, do you know what Asa was prepared for? Because he's not invulnerable to trials either. He was prepared for that attack that came. Go ahead and look with me at verse 8, 2 Chronicles 14, 8. We all face trials. Asa's no exception. Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah who carried shields and spears, and from Benjamin, 280,000 men who carried shields and drew bows. All these were mighty men of valor. Now, that army sounds pretty big, doesn't it? 500-something thousand men. That is, until you read the next verse, verse 9. Then Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against Asa with an army of one million men and 300 chariots, and he came to him at Marisha. This is one of the most formidable armies recorded in all of Scripture. And so when you read that Asa had an army of over 500,000 men, that sounds impressive until you learn that he's attacked by an army of almost twice that size. Now, this is when people struggle with the Old Testament because they look at this and they say, well, I'm never going to be attacked by an army. I'm never going to be a king of a nation or a kingdom that I have to defend like he did from some physical army that comes against me. What can I possibly learn from this? And that's a good question for you to ask. Ephesians 6.11 says this, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, which means we don't fight against physical armies, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So in other words, we're not fighting physical battles, but we are fighting spiritual battles. We are fighting spiritual battles on this side of heaven. We don't have armies of one million soldiers coming against us, but we experience trials that feel like an army of one million soldiers coming against us. The desperation that Asa was feeling at this moment, his vulnerability, the recognition that his kingdom is about to fall, if not for God's intervention, is the same desperation. The terror that was in his heart in this moment is the same terror that people experience when they get that cancer diagnosis, when their spouse is unfaithful, when that child rebels, when there's that job loss, When there's that betrayal from that friend, you've been there for him or you've been there for her, who knows how many times, and then the one time you're going through something and you call that person and they're not available. 
And that is a trial because you were looking to be able to count on that person. And all of those trials and that desperation, that fear that we experience, that's exactly what Asa was experiencing at this moment. To Asa's credit, he responded wonderfully. No matter how many times I read this prayer, it always encourages me. No matter how many times I read Asa's prayer, it always refreshes me. If you happen to have your Bible open, when I read this prayer from Asa, you might highlight it. You might underline it. You might put some asterisks there. Second Chronicles 14.10, look what Asa does. Asa went out against him, against this army. They set the troops in battle array in the valley of Zephathah at Merishah, and notice this. Asa cried out to the Lord his God. And this is what you need to do. This is what we need to do. And he said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help. This is nothing. This is nothing to you, Lord. Whether with many or with those who have no power, help us. O Lord, our God, we are resting on you. In your name, we go against this multitude. Or in your name, we go against this trial. In your name, we go against this cancer diagnosis. In your name, we go against this job loss or this unfaithful spouse or this rebellious child. You are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. And that, amen. And that is what it looks like, brothers and sisters, to turn to the Lord during trials. So you highlight this in your Bible. You underline it. And you go to it when you're suffering. And this is what you read. This is what you pray. These words to the Lord. You get on your face. You can bring your family together. You bring your spouse with you. You bring your children and you tell your children as a family, we're going to seek the Lord's face. We're going to come together. And we're going to pour out our hearts to him. This is a tremendous prayer. And I want you to notice three things that Asa did. First... He praised God. He praised God. He recognized God's sovereignty. He recognized God's power to help in the situation. He recognized God's majesty. And second, he poured out his heart to God. He was transparent. He did not water it down. He described the desperation of the situation to him. And you should too. You should too. You don't need to water it down for the Lord. You pour your heart out to him. You tell him how you're feeling about what you're going through. You just bear your soul, open it all up for him in prayer. Let him see all of it. Share it all with him. The third thing Asa did was he depended on God. You notice that even though he might have had an army of over half a million soldiers, do you see any hint of them mentioned in his prayer? No. And do you know why that is? Because he wasn't looking to his army for help. He was depending on the Lord. That's where he was looking at this moment for help. Proverbs 21.31, it says, The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Don't look to the world. Don't look to any answers or solutions it offers when you're suffering or going through trials. You need to turn to the Lord. You need to depend on him. That's where the deliverance and the help and the encouragement is going to come from. Asa's trial was the Ethiopian army. What might your trial be? Or what is your trial that you're going through right at this moment? Maybe it is a difficult marriage. 
Maybe it is a struggle with a child. Maybe it's a struggle with a parent. Maybe it's a struggle with a sibling. Maybe it's a struggle with a neighbor. Maybe it's a struggle with a coworker. Maybe it's a financial issue. Whatever the case is, Asa's trial was the Ethiopian army, and your trial is fill in the blank, and you need to handle it like he did. You need to encounter that trial and face it just like Asa faced the Ethiopian army. Look what God did in response. Verse 12, 2 Chronicles 14, 12. So the Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. So God honored Asa's dependence on him, and he gave him this tremendous victory. You can read the rest of it. Perhaps read it as a, as a couple if you're married, or read it with, as a family with your children, and see the wonderful victory that God gave Asa for depending on him as he struck down this enemy. And now I've got to be honest with you. This is the most difficult moment of the sermon for me. And maybe some of you have had this nagging question in your mind, if you're familiar with this account, or perhaps just as I read verse 12. Because this is what I would love to be able to say to you. If you depend on the Lord like Asa did, then he's going to give you victory over that trial like he gave him. He is going to defeat that enemy or that trial just like God defeated the Ethiopians for Asa. I would love to be able to say he's going to bring back that unfaithful spouse. He's going to draw that rebellious child to repentance. He's going to bring that difficult coworker to repentance, put some humility or some compassion in this person that's ruining your your job for you. I'd love to be able to say he's going to heal. Two weeks ago or a week and a half ago when my wife and I drove to the hospital to see James and Rachel, only... Um, moments after they had received that cancer diagnosis, 27 years old, three young children diagnosed with stage four cancer. And when you walk into a room, and I saw Jameson, and we made eye contact, you don't say anything. You don't say anything. You read that person, you let the person approach you, and you pray that God will reveal how to respond. And at that moment, the response was to hold Jameson while he sobbed, on my shoulder, and for my wife to hold Rachel while she cried. That was the response. Now, what do you think I would have loved more than anything to be able to say to Rachel and Jameson at that moment? God's going to heal you, Rachel. God's going to heal you. I would have loved, and that has been our prayer. We anointed her with oil. The elders did later that day, according to James 5. We have been praying fervently as a church that God will heal Rachel I covet your prayers for her. I covet your text messages and emails, your comments on her posts, on her blog that was set up for her, that you're praying for her. Please let her know that. Please be praying. Please be interceding for her. I would love more than anything to be able to tell you that God is always going to heal, that he's always going to give a better job, that he's always going to bring about repentance in that difficult or painful person. But the problem is what? He might not. He might not. And if he doesn't, he is still good. If he doesn't, he is still good. It's very easy to sing the songs that we sing in here when God is giving the victory that we want. I'm going to ask you this. I'm just going to be candid with you. Can you sing those songs if God is not answering the prayers the way that you want? Can you sing what you sang earlier if God is not answering your prayers, if he's not providing the healing 
or reconciliation that you want to see. My hope is you can. My hope even more than that is that I can. It's very easy for me to say these things to you this morning because my wife doesn't have stage four cancer. None of my children do. We happen to be in a nice season of peace or rest. And so I hope that if we, when we experience that trial, that I can be a good witness to my church and to people who know me and still declare the goodness of God when he's not answering the way that I want. So what I want to do is I want to encourage you and let you know why God is still good even when he is not answering our prayers the way that we might want. And this brings us to lesson five on your bulletins or in your handouts. Jesus provided victory over the greatest enemy. Jesus provided victory over the greatest enemy. I'll say it like this to you. If I was in Asa's shoes and I was facing a million-man army coming against me, and I had the choice between God giving me victory over that enemy, that million-man army, or receiving victory over the true and greater enemy that Christ has defeated, which is sin and death, hands down, I will always take that victory that Jesus has provided. I will always take that victory that Christ has achieved on my behalf. And that is the true and greater enemy. That is the true and greater victory that has been achieved through Christ for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death is an enemy. And I'll tell you what, that enemy that Asa faced pales in comparison. That million-man army pales in comparison to the true and greater enemy we face, which is sin and death. That's the victory you want, the victory over that enemy. Listen to these wonderful verses. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. So when this corruptible, referring to our earthly bodies, has put on incorruption, referring to us receiving our glorified bodies, and this mortal has put on immortality, which is to say when we've received eternal life, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? Or in other words, death can no longer hurt us. It no longer poses any threat to us. O oh, Hades, where is your victory? Hades is another way to refer to death. And this is God's way of saying Hades has no victory over us. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And that is the victory we want. Amen? That is the victory we want. Death is most people's greatest fear. Interestingly, Hebrews, Hebrews does not say that death has made us slaves, although that would be true. Hebrews actually says that the fear of death has made us slaves. We're so terrified of death that the terror itself makes us slaves. We're slaves to the fear of death. Just the fear of dying holds us in bondage every day. The terror associated with dying holds us in bondage and makes us slaves every single day. And the only way there's any freedom from that fear and that terror is through Jesus Christ and the victory that he has achieved. Just to describe how clearly death is defeated, here's what's interesting. In most Bibles, death is capitalized. 
because God is personifying it. He's making it look like an enemy. He wants you to recognize it's an enemy that Christ has defeated on your behalf. That's why in your Bibles, death is personified or capitalized, so you see it as an enemy that Jesus has defeated. And in Revelation 20, verse 14, listen to this wild verse. Revelation 20, verse 14, it says, Death is cast into the lake of fire. You've got death going to hell. (laughs) That's pretty crazy, isn't it? It's true. You've got death going to hell. Why would God write that? Because God wants you to recognize that the victory Christ has given you over death is so great, he describes death itself being cast into the lake of fire or cast into hell. So you can have that much confidence, that much thankfulness associated with what Jesus has done for you. Just like God fought for Asa and gave him the victory over the enemy he faced, Jesus has fought for us, and he has given us the victory over the true and greater enemy that we face, which is sin and the consequence of it, death. Here's the thing, and I want to be real honest with you about this. He hasn't given everyone this victory. Jesus, let me say that one more time, you heard me correctly. Jesus has not given everyone this victory. He has not achieved this victory for everyone. If that was the case, we would be universalists. There would be no hell. Everyone would go to heaven. According to Matthew 7, when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, I don't, I'm not, by acknowledging this or sharing this with you, I'm not saying that I like it, but I'm just going to tell you what God's word says. Jesus uses the words few and many. Few and many to describe those going to heaven versus going to hell. I might wish it was the other way around, but I don't have the liberty to tell you what I want or what I want God's word to say. I need to tell you what God's word says. And God's word says few and many. You can read it 100 times and it still says the same thing. And I don't know if that's 4060. I don't know if that's 3070, 2080. I don't know what the percents are, but I can tell you this. Jesus definitely has not achieved this victory for everyone. This is a victory he has achieved for those who have repented of their sins and looked to him in faith. Let me say that one more time. This is a victory Jesus has achieved for those and those only who have repented of their sins and look to him in faith. If you have done that, then praise God. This victory belongs to you. If you have not done that, you need to. If you have not done that, you need to. You're not going to be dead more than two or three seconds before you regret that you didn't listen to me today when I said that to you. If you have not repented and put your faith in Christ. Now, two things before I close. First, Living Hope has very graciously invited me to sell some of my books in the foyer, as Alan mentioned. I'm not trying to look, I'm not trying to make money from this. All the proceeds from any of my books that you purchase will go toward Rachel Dye and her medical bills for her cancer treatment. And so may I just once again very sincerely thank the staff at Living Hope 
for the way that they have not just allowed me to preach today, but have allowed me to come alongside this young mother that we love at Woodland Christian Church and support her during this difficult time. Alan, Pastor Doug, when you listen to this, Pastor Neil, you, this congregation, I might not have to tell you this, you might know this already, just in case there's two or three people that don't, you are blessed by the staff that you have here. You are blessed. Yes. You are blessed. I am endeared to them. I am endeared to the staff here. If I wasn't a senior pastor, I'd be here Sunday mornings, but I got another place I got to be. <laughs> so I'm thankful for these people. And, I'm, and I, you have an opportunity if you want to contribute to, to Rachel's uh, medical bills to do that. The more important thing that I want to tell you is there are going to be people up front and we, they, I will be with them, we would consider it a tremendous privilege to be able to pray with you. If I was talking about repenting and putting your faith in Christ and you felt convicted, you thought, you know, Pastor Scott's talking and uh, I don't know if I've done that. Don't ignore that. That would be terribly foolish. And if that offended you, I'm not sorry. (laughs) It would be a terribly foolish thing for you to be convicted by the Holy Spirit about repenting and putting your faith in Christ and then to walk out those doors. We will be up front and we would consider it a tremendous privilege to have the opportunity to speak with you. I would love to be able to answer any questions that you have. If you're saved, if you're born again, sealed by the Holy Spirit, but you're going through something, some trial, some suffering, some difficulty, maritally with your family, with your job, when we're up front, we would still consider it a tremendous privilege to have the opportunity to pray with you. Thank you very much for this opportunity to share God's word with you this morning. Let's pray. Let's pray. We give you the honor, Lord. Any, any clapping, any amens that took place this morning are for you and for what you have done. Any praise, any honor, any glory this morning goes to you, Jesus Christ, for what you have done on our behalf. We thank you. We thank you, Father, for sending your son for our sins, defeating the true and greater enemy that we face. And I would pray if there is anyone here who has not repented of their sins and put their faith in your son, that that's something you would bring about, convict them of and bring about in their hearts this morning, Lord. Encourage us as we go through trials to be like Asa, to turn to you and to depend on you. Help us to be building those strong foundations in our lives for when we encounter them because we know they are part of life on this side of heaven. We thank you, Lord, for what your son Jesus Christ has done for us and we pray all these things in his name. Amen, amen, amen.